Matthew chapter number 9, and um, if you have a physical Bible with you today, if you're looking to find that, um, it's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, first book of the New Testament that we're going to be studying in today. And um, we also want to uh, welcome a special guest that we have with us today. I say a guest, it's their first time here for a while, uh, first time here ever, right? Um, and we want to congratulate um, Victoria and uh, baby Cooper. And so I won't, you guys don't have to stand up, you're okay, you just, he's not crying, we're all good, right? And so uh, we'll keep him that way. So we're so glad. Um, is it three, three weeks? Three weeks ago, um, baby Cooper was born, and so um, I want to congratulate her, and we're grateful um, to meet him. It's fine. Give a round of applause and welcome to uh, Cooper, his first Sunday in church, and so we're glad um, to have him here with us. We're grateful for that. Matthew chapter number nine today. And uh, as we step into this, um, last week we talked a little bit about how we um, approach this passage in the book of Matthew, especially this section of the book, and how Jesus, um, there are three sets of three miracles and sets of three healings that Jesus accomplishes, and Matthew groups those together. And then between these sets of three, there's a little bit of an interlude. And so today we're in one of those interludes between, and then next week we will wrap up, we'll conclude um, the last uh, set of healings taking place within this section of the book of Matthew. As we get started here today in chapter number nine, um, I want to ask you a question. You ever been in a place where you had to make an immediate decision? Like, you have to answer now. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> right? Okay, you guys are terrible at making immediate decisions, right? We all want a chance to, um, if there's a big life-changing decision, we all want the chance to think about it, right? Um, and if, uh, if you're spiritual, pray about it. That's a good thing too, right? But we at least want some time to think about it, to probably overthink it. Any overthinkers in here? Um, if you're considering raising your hand and you didn't, you might be an overthinker, okay? But here, we're sitting here today, and we want to, like, know what am I getting myself into? What's taking place? What's coming down the pike? What, how, what am I committing to? When we sign um, a, a new um, document, whether it's for a mortgage or uh, whatever it might be, we want to know all the terms and the conditions, unless it's, like, on your phone, and then you just hit accept, and you never read it. But what we see here, we're stepping into Jesus presenting, once again, a decision to those around him. And this decision, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to check back in a week. I'm going to check back in a month. But what we find is that instead, Jesus comes to a place where he's asking someone to make a decision. And they are put in a place to make an immediate decision and a decision that they really can't go back on. And in fact, the person that we're discussing, the person that we're going to be reading about, is himself the author of the book that we have been studying, Matthew. Now, Matthew is an interesting guy, as we are about to see here in uh, verse number 9 of chapter number 9. Because we find Matthew recording that Jesus passed on from um, these previous things that he had done. He passed on from there. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. What do you think of um, tax collectors? <laughs> Someone knocks on your door and says, hi, I'm from the IRS. How does that make you feel? Warm and fuzzy? Do we have anyone in here who works for the IRS? <laughs> Maybe I should lead with that. <laughs> Now, even today, um, we, we don't, um, that's not our desire. Um, in fact, um, we're kind of a nation that was um, founded in part around uh, taxation, right? If you uh, remember your U.S. history, that's not a thing that we love. No one loves taxes. 
When we talk about Matthew being a tax collector, I want us to have a deep understanding of what's taking place. Matthew being a tax collector was not just merely he worked for the taxing agency. But at this time, the Jews were occupied and subjugated by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And so the Jews did not collect taxes uh, in the same sense. The Romans were the ones who were collecting taxes. So here, Matthew, who we um, will come to understand is a Jew, is sitting at the tax booth, and he is part of this tax collection process. But he's not a Roman. He's a Jew. So he is aiding the conquerors who have come into his homeland. And so that's uh, enough for most people to say, hey, I don't care much for that guy. He's not really, I'm not a big fan of his. On top of that, most of these tax collectors also did not behave very ethically. Many of these tax collectors would uh, understand and know the amount that was owed by the government, owed to the government by the individuals, but then they would add surplus to this. They would tax above that rate, and they would cheat people out of extra money for the sake of these taxes. And then you say, hey, wait a second, you're doing me dirty, you're, you're cheating, that's not what I owe. And then they would just say, oh, this man's not paying his taxes. And then all of a sudden you have Roman guards saying, uh, excuse me, sir, did I hear you're not paying your taxes? And then it kind of degrades from there. You don't have a say in this manipulation. Now, it's not that all tax collectors uh, would have necessarily behaved this way, but there was enough of it going on that no one cared for the tax collectors because you didn't know who was and who wasn't. And as a tax collector, there was very little motivation to not because everyone's going to treat you that way regardless of how you actually behave. And so there's this stigma attached to the tax collectors. So as Jesus comes to this man, Matthew, as he meets this man, Matthew, there's a lot more that's taking place. Matthew is an outsider in his culture. Matthew is not liked by the other Jews. Many of the friends that he would have known growing up would have disowned him. In fact, um, it's possible that even family members would have pushed him on the outside and rejected him because of his affiliation and loyalty to the Romans. And so whereas Matthew had at one point been a part of this Jewish culture, now he has been rejected from it because of his willingness to affiliate with these Romans and take on this role. And so as we step into this, there's a lot taking place just in the very first introductory verse of this paragraph. And so Jesus passes on and he sees this man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, watch this, life-changing words, follow me. Follow me. Now, Jesus didn't uh, ask the question. He didn't come to Matthew and say, hey, Matthew, would you be willing to follow me and ask it that way? But he said, instead, he called to Matthew and said, follow me. And what was Matthew's response? Give me a second, Jesus. I need to think about this. Understand that as Matthew, if Matthew obeys what Jesus is calling him to do, he's not, where is he going to go? Okay, think about this with me. Matthew walks away from the tax collection. What do the Jews think of him? They despise him, right? He's scum. He's get, get that guy away from me. I want nothing to do with this Matthew. And then if he leaves the Romans, do you think the Romans are going to welcome him back with open arms if he decides that was a mistake? So what is he doing? He's, he's stepping into this third option knowing that there's no way back if it doesn't work out. 
If this doesn't go the way that Matthew hopes it goes, there's no turning back in this decision. The bridges are burned. And yet Jesus, as he's passing by, says, Matthew, follow me. And what does Matthew do? Watch this response here. He rose and followed him. Now, I think it's incredible because uh, as we look at this, this Matthew is the author of the book. And yet he doesn't record any of his words, any of his thoughts. He only records his actions. As soon as he hears this call, he gets up and he goes. You see, at the same time, while all of this is taking place, um, they are in a region that uh, it's possible that Matthew would have even been involved in the taxation of other, dis- uh, other uh, followers of Jesus. And so can you imagine now the awkward conversations that are taking place? Even now, Matthew, as he has left his old life and he's following after Jesus, because it's possible that he had manipulated and taken advantage of men that now he's living with and traveling with and following Jesus with. Uh, But watch where we go from here. Verse number 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house. Now, um, I tend to believe and uh, many tend to believe that this house that we're speaking of here is Matthew's house. Um, That Matthew is the one hosting just based on the context. It doesn't tell us who's home. We know that Jesus himself doesn't have a home from a few weeks ago when we studied. And so many believe this to be Matthew's home. But it says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many, watch this, tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so what's happening here? All of a sudden, this home, likely Matthew's, is now flooded with who? Tax collectors and what the Bible calls sinners. This word sinners here is not maybe the same way that we would use the word sinners. Uh, As we speak of sinners, we have all sinned. And so all of us are born into the category of sinners. This word that's being used here as sinners is not just speaking broadly of anyone who was born, uh, but this is speaking specifically of those who carried the stigma of their sin. So these are individuals that are known by their sin. So the tax collectors are known by their affiliation with the Romans, right? That person is a tax collector. We don't know what other sins there were here, but there may have been, uh, there may have been others that were adulterers. There may have been others that were promiscuous. There may have been others that were uh, alcoholics or this or that. Who knows what the stigma was placed on the individuals. But we know that these are people who are identified with their sin. And so that's the crowd that is at Matthew's house. Can I ask a question really quickly before we progress? Why do you think this was the crowd at Matthew's house? Who were Matthew's friends? Tax collectors and sinners, right? And so when Matthew decides to follow Jesus, who is he introducing to Jesus? The people he knows. He's not all of a sudden turning his back on them and only looking for the righteous. He's not only saying, oh, you know, I'm a righteous person now because I follow after Jesus. But he's going and he's finding those who are in need of Jesus and saying, hey, come with me and meet this man. And who knows what conversations were had going into this? Because if you are a tax collector and you are a sinner and you're looking and there's this man who's known as a rabbi, a teacher, you might say, well, this man's going to want nothing to do with me. No one religious wants to come within a mile of me. And so who knows what kind of convincing it took Matthew uh, to get them into his home. But we know, nevertheless, that they were there. 
And so imagine this group. This is an interesting crowd, right? Jesus and his disciples, um, who are mostly uneducated, um, not uh, ungodly, but uneducated, and then tax collectors and sinners. So this hodgepodge group is meeting together within this home. Verse number 11. Um, Jesus could never go very far without the Pharisees seeing him. And so verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, it was just a matter of time. They said to his disciples, so these Pharisees, uh, these are religious leaders. These are people who pride themselves in keeping the law. Not only do they not violate the law, but they don't spend time with people who violate the law. And so I'm not having dinner with those people. And so what do they do? Um, and first of all, can we just take a second to acknowledge the uh, those people mentality that they have? Because that's what's going on here. Uh, those people as if they are separate from and superior to. And so these Pharisees come in. Um, they don't really come in because they don't want to get too close. Uh, but maybe they see a disciple of Jesus on the fringe. and They're like, oh, yeah, that's Peter. We know Peter. Or, oh, that's John. We know John. John, come here. And they call one of his disciples. We don't know which one. But they call one of his disciples and they said, listen, why, why is your master eating with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, you can read the, the spite just dripping off of these words here in the text. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when he heard it, this is Jesus, those, he said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so as soon as Jesus gets wind of what's taking place, Jesus immediately says, watch this phrase. He, he says this. Go and learn, verse number 13. Go and learn. Um, now the Pharisees loved the idea that they knew a lot about the Bible. And what does Jesus immediately say? Why don't you go study some more? Why don't you go learn? What are you talking about? Why don't you go study? And in fact, while you're studying, look for this phrase. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, why does he have to critique this within the Pharisees? Why does he have to say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Well, because the Pharisees had inverted this. The Pharisees loved the sacrifices. They loved the traditionalism and they loved the, uh, the rituals and they loved the things that they were supposed to do. And yet when it came time for mercy, they were like, listen, I don't got time for that mercy. I'm too busy doing the things. I'm too busy studying and knowing and building up this knowledge that I have that I can pride myself in so that I might better serve God by being knowledgeable. And yet when it came to applying the law to the lives of themselves and others, well, we're not here for that. We, yeah, we don't have time for that. And so Jesus speaks critically to these religious. Now, so far in this passage, who has Jesus spoken critically to? Did he speak critically from the words that we have recorded to the, uh, the tax collectors? Is he treating them harshly? Who is, he, who is he criticizing? The Pharisees, the religious, the ones who had the knowledge and the understanding, or should have at least. And I want you to catch this. Jesus here criticized the religious for prioritizing their knowledge over obedience. 
He says, you have come in here and you've taken, you think you know all of these things. Go and learn. You think you got this down? Go study this. Because they hear, they are knowledgeable about the law. They have studied the law. In fact, many of the Pharisees, if not most and all, would have committed to memory what we know as the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. There are some of us in here that we got badges for memorizing verses as kids, and uh, Utah asked us to quote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Good luck, right? I can get the first verse of Genesis, all right, but these people would know the law forwards and backwards and yet missed out on the point and the purpose of the law. And so here Jesus is criticizing them. And understand this too about Jesus. I love this about Jesus is that Jesus, when he has a, a time that he needs to speak um, bluntly, he's very willing to do so. And he's very willing to do so to the individuals who need to hear it, Right. Um, So he doesn't pull the disciples aside and say, hey, those guys over there. No, he says, listen to me. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so here Jesus is criticizing and critiquing these Pharisees. And what's the illustration even here that he gives? He says, the people that are whole, do they need a physician? Do they need a doctor? Right now, uh, as we're all aware, there's a kind of a medical crisis going on in our area, right? Hospitals are full. It's difficult to get a room. Um, you have to be very severe to, why is that? Is it because there's so many healthy people knocking on the door saying, hey, please come look at me? No. When you're healthy, your need for a doctor isn't urgent. When you're healthy, we go in, what, once a year, right? Something like that. We, we don't, we're not living at the doctor's office, but, but when you're sick, you need a physician. When we're ill, we, we need that care and that attention, and so Jesus here is speaking, and he's looking at these Pharisees. Now, Jesus understood, and we understood, understand that these Pharisees, they're sick. Um, they're not healthy, but they think they're healthy. They're kind of doing the, <clears throat> no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. All right, so look, men, they're like us. They don't want to go see the doctor. They don't want to go be, be seen. They're going to be fine. That's what these Pharisees are doing. And Jesus comes, and Jesus is speaking, and he says, hey, listen, you think you don't need a doctor. You think you don't need a physician because you're whole. You think you've got it all together. But you know what I think Jesus really appreciated about Matthew and about the tax collectors and the sinners? They knew they needed a doctor. They knew they needed help. He didn't have to convince them that they were lost. They were very aware of it. And many of them were wondering how they could ever get back. You see, they've made those decisions. They'd followed sin and we understand that there is a pleasure in sin for a season. But as these tax collectors are coming to be around Jesus, we have to believe that they're doing it out of a desire that there's something different taking place. There is a hope from the lives that they may otherwise be living. If they were satisfied with their lives as tax collectors and sinners, what need do they have of Jesus? Why would they ever want to spend time around him or his disciples? And so Jesus says, listen, Pharisees, you think you're good, so be good, fine, whatever. I'm going to those who need me, to those who are sick, and understand their sickness. And then he continues. This is really fascinating where all of this comes, all of this goes. But what we see is these Pharisees who thought that they didn't need healing. They thought they didn't need healing. 
They knew mentally the law, but they had no sense of applying it and really understanding it. A well-known businessman one day was having a conversation with a great author, Mark Twain. Um, And he said, he told Twain, he said, before I die, I plan to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And I want to go to the top of Mount Sinai, and I want to read the Ten Commandments on top of the mountain that God gave them to Moses. Twain um, smirked and looked at the man and said, you know, you'd be better off staying in Boston and keeping them. Because the fact is, is this man was known for not actually living by these laws. A high regard for the religious beliefs, but no sense of actually applying them to his own life. Well, that's the Pharisees, and if we're not careful, that can very soon be us. An outward alignment that may fool other people, but we understand that God knows the heart. But he doesn't stop there. Um, And in fact, he actually continues um, in verse number 14. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so again, they have another question about um, the piety, about the observance of religious things. And so there's this transition that takes place. And they say, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Um, So if you can imagine these two things coming back to back. In the first section, the Pharisees are critiquing Jesus and criticizing Jesus. Um, Maybe we could say for um, uh, for being a partier, right? Um, We don't see Jesus doing anything um, sketchy or immoral, but what are you doing? Why are you celebrating and why are you having food with these sinners? And now they're coming to Jesus and saying, first you go celebrate and eat with sinners and now you don't fast? What is wrong with you? And so once again, trying to critique and criticize Jesus. And so they're not accusing him of being a prude. They're not accusing him of being holier than, behaving holier than anyone else. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And so now they're, they're critiquing. And notice that it's not just the Pharisees this time, but it's also disciples of who? John. Speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a strict uh, practitioner of asceticism, very, um, very withdrawn, very, um, uh, very uh, informal, very uh, against um, the, a lot of the, the uh, <laughs> what would he do? He would fast, he would preach in the desert, he would deny himself, right? That's like what he was. At his core, he was denying himself. And so the followers of John began to live like John. And so they denied themselves. Um, they would not eat of the better meats and drinks. They would, uh, they would abstain from any of those things. And so they said, hey, listen, Jesus, we're over here fasting and hungry with the Pharisees, and you're over here. You're just eating and drinking like nothing's going on. You're just over here enjoying yourself. Why is that, Jesus? And Jesus speaks to them, and Jesus says um, something really interesting. Because it's not like Jesus to, um, it's like Jesus to speak in parable, right? So what does he do? Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And so what's that question? Do you go to a funeral, spend time with your friend who's getting married, and cry about it? Um, now, if you're at a wedding... And you're, I mean, there are tears of joy that take place at weddings, right? Sometimes, you know, uh, we get that. But if you're at a wedding and you're just the miserable and sad and wailing, 
Um, it's going to throw off the mood, right? Uh, could you imagine going out with your, your friend, at, uh, going to the rehearsal dinner, and you're sitting there, and everyone's excited, and you're just sitting in the seat, and you're just, ah! <laughs> you're just mourning like he's dying. Like, that's not what's supposed to be happening, right? That would feel very out of place. And so he's sitting here, he's saying to them, why would the friends of the bridegroom mourn at the wedding? Why would they be in this spirit of mourning? But watch, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom was with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. And so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, there's not a reason for fasting at the moment. There's not a reason to take place. We're not fasting. What is he comparing it to? He's comparing it to a wedding. He's saying, we're celebrating. We're celebrating. Now, does this mean there were not difficult days being a follower of Jesus? No. But Jesus, he's saying, listen, you're wondering why I'm not asking these people to weep and mourn and, and fast because I'm here. Because I'm here. It's an appropriate time for celebration. And if you look at the history of Israel for thousands of years, they've been waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Christ, waiting for the one that would save his people from their sins. Matthew introduces him as when he is present, there's not a need for mourning and fasting and weeping. When he's present, it's a cause for celebration. It's a cause for joy. And understand this. Uh, Jesus is a reason for celebration. Jesus is a reason for celebration. You see, uh, even when we're at times in our life that are difficult, does Jesus promise that we will never have difficult times in our life? No, no. If you've been here more than once, you understand that I'm very clear that we walk through hardships as followers of Jesus. In fact, sometimes our life may be more difficult because we're a follower of Jesus. It's part of the cost of our discipleship. But even in the middle of all of this, we have a reason for celebration. Because we know the bridegroom. Uh, we can celebrate it knowing that there is a better hope and there's a greater day coming. And even here, as he uses this illustration, he's actually tying in a theme, Matthew is, between his own calling and these parables that Jesus is speaking in response to this question on fasting. See, why is Jesus a reason for celebration? Just like the groomsman is at the wedding, it's a reason for celebration to spend time with that friend who we are celebrating this moment in their life and we are rejoicing and we're excited and we are happy about this wedding day. But that's not the only illustration he gives. In fact, he turns very quickly into two others. He says this in verse number 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Uh, how many of you have had uh, maybe a favorite shirt or a favorite sweater, um, and you had it for a long time? Anybody ever have that, that favorite piece of clothing? You just you like the way it fits, you like the way it looks on you. Any of you ever get up one day, throw on, I know what I'm going to wear, throw on that favorite sweater, that favorite shirt, and all of a sudden, it doesn't quite fit anymore, right? Maybe it doesn't fit because um, you have expanded your horizons. Um, maybe it doesn't fit because what happens to clothes as they age? They wear out, and oftentimes what happens? They shrink, right? 
I have a couple of t-shirts I bought, and when I bought them, the first few times I wore them, they fit great, you know, they're right where they're supposed to be. And then I put them on, and all of a sudden I put them on, and they're, I can't wear these in public, right? No one wants me to wear those in public. Let me say it that way. And so we have those clothes. What do they do? They, they shrink up over time. Um, and there's a process that takes place, but uh, we, we're careful, some of us, about not drying specific clothes. Why? Because we don't want it to shrink so it doesn't fit. And so we wash it, and then we hang it up, and we let it air dry, and we hope that it'll preserve that clothing. Here, Jesus is speaking, and he says, you wouldn't take a patch from clothing that had never been through that shrinking process and apply that to a garment that had been through that shrinking process. Because then what would happen? Well, the day you put the patch on, the patch is going to seem like it fits okay, right? You're going to measure it out and you're going to sew it on. And okay, perfect. The patch is there. And then uh, you're going to wash it once. It'll probably still be okay when you wash it once. You may wash it twice, maybe wash it a third time. But after a few times, you're going to wash this garment and what's going to happen? That cloth that had never been through the shrinking process is going to go through the shrinking process. The old garment is not going to continue to shrink. It's already been there. And then what's going to happen to the garments? It's going to begin to tear. It's going to pull away. And then now that hole is going to be worse than it was before it was even patched. Right? And that's not the only illustration he gives. In fact, he gives a second one uh, right after it. He gives this, uh, we'll read it first and we'll explain it. Look at here what he says. Verse number 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. And so what's taking place here? What's this illustration? Um, so wineskins in this day and age are made out of leather skins, Right? And so um, leather, what happens to leather as it ages? When it's new, how does it feel? It's very, what's the word we use to describe leather? It's soft, right? Supple, all right? Supple's the word that, for whatever reason, leather, supple is the word that comes into my mind. I don't know why. But it's very soft. It's very uh, flexible, right? Uh, a good new piece of leather. Well, what happens to leather um, that has not been um, treated specifically and cared for specifically over a period of years? What happens to leather? It it dries and it cracks, right? Um, and so we understand the metaphor of the leather. Here he speaks of this new wine. And what he's speaking of is a process of fermentation. Anytime that a, there is a, a fermentation process that takes place, gas is released and it expands. And so if you take this wine skin and you cork it, Inside, if it's a new wine, if it's a fresh wine, even just sitting for a few days, it's going to begin that fermentation process. And there are going to be gases that are released from this wine. And then what's going to happen to the wine skin? Well, if it's old, it's going to expand, right? Does old leather expand? No. It's going to crack. It's going to burst. It's going to have a hole in it. All of a sudden, it's going to have a hole in it. And then the wine skin's gone, and the wine's gone. If, but if you take that supple, soft, new wineskin, and you take that wine in it, as that fermentation process begins, and as the wine begins to put pressure on the wineskin, what begins to happen? That new leather, that soft, supple leather does what? It expands. It takes that, it takes that expansion. It moves with it. And so here Jesus is speaking of new things. New things. Um, the new marriage and the celebration of it with the bridegroom. The uh, new patch on an old garment. 
And then the new wine and a new wine skin versus the old wine and the old wine skin. Here, Jesus continues to, throughout all of this interlude, he is giving, Matthew is speaking and writing towards the same theme. And here it is. I want you to catch it. Jesus can make anything new. Jesus can make anything new. Think back to the very beginning of our time together this morning. Jesus is walking by and he sees a man named Matthew. Matthew was surrounded by a stigma. Matthew was looked down on. Matthew was an outcast. Jesus didn't look at Matthew and say, wow, what a waste. You know what Jesus looked at and saw in Matthew? He saw what his grace could accomplish through his life. He says, I can make him new. I can make him new. Then all of a sudden, these Pharisees, these Pharisees, we see Jesus, for whatever reason, he doesn't even seem to like try with the Pharisees. Why is that? Well, those Pharisees weren't at a point to understand what Jesus was doing. These Pharisees and their religious laws, the things that they loved and held themselves to, it's like that old garment, like that old wineskin. Jesus here is saying, if I'm trying to put the new stuff into this, it's not going to work. You can't handle the things that I'm trying to give to you. They weren't ready for it. We know that there were some Pharisees that came and that did believe in Christ, but what did it take for them? They had to reject the ways that they had comprehended so much of that law. They had to come to understand it wasn't about the sacrifices and it wasn't about the systems and about the, the rituals and the things. What was it about? It was about the mercy of God. I want mercy and not sacrifice. All of this I say to, to lead up to who? To Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he can make anything new. And so we don't cling to what was while he tries to call us to what will be. As Jesus came and he called Matthew, Matthew had to leave it behind. He couldn't say, I'm going to keep collecting taxes, but Jesus, I'm following you on the inside. That's not what happened. That, that wouldn't work. And so to the Pharisees, you can't keep just being a Pharisee and follow after me. It's not compatible. So to us, Jesus is still calling to us. And understand that when we speak of our salvation, sometimes I think we have the misconception that Jesus is trying to come into people's lives and he's trying to come to bad people and he's trying to make them good. Listen, um, following after Jesus should result in you being a better person, but that's not the point. Jesus doesn't come into lives just of bad people to make them good. In fact, Jesus more accurately comes into the lives of dead people to make them alive. He comes into our hearts. We're far from God and we don't understand him. And spiritually, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And he comes into us to make us new. And that's why, listen, that's why religion do this, do that, be better. It doesn't work. Because when you try to patch that in and try to patch biblical morality into a life that has never been set free from sin, it doesn't happen. What does it do? It puts a strain on that old garment. It puts a strain on it, pulls on it, it tears and it rends. And in fact, it ends up more harmful than it was to begin with. But when the grace of God transforms our hearts and transforms our lives. When he makes us new, when we are born again, we're restored. And you see, if we say that Jesus can make anything new, you know what that also means? Jesus can make anyone new. That means there's not a person that's too far gone for the grace of God to reach. 
There's not an individual based on your life. You can't say, I've done this and God could never save me. That person does not exist. The grace of God is far enough. And you see, as we look at this and we say, Jesus, he can make anything new. He can make anyone new. And it's not a matter of being a better person. It's not a matter of trying harder or checking off a list. It's a matter of letting go of all of those things and putting our faith only in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, there is no salvation from sin. There's nothing that you and I can do to be good enough to work our way to any of it. But Jesus. So there are those in here today that maybe you need to be made new. Maybe God's working in your heart and you say, hey, I've been trying to be a better person. I'm trying to go to church and do the church things, read the Bible, to, to obey the, the rules, and to well, listen, can I encourage you today? It's about faith in Jesus Christ. It's about turning to Him and letting Him do the work in your heart. You see those good works? Those come after the fact. Those are a result of the grace that changes us and transforms us. But you can't make yourself new any more than I can. You can't just turn over a new leaf and then all of a sudden, that's not how it works. But Jesus, Jesus wants to make you new. To take that old man, that old you, that old person, and say, hey, I can give you a life. It's abundant, it's full, it's eternal. But he says, follow me. So maybe you're sitting in here today and you've never made that decision to follow Christ. You never made the decision to put your faith in him and to believe in him for your salvation. I want to encourage you, today could be the day that you could do that. In a moment, we're going to have what we call an invitation. That means we're inviting you to respond to the word of God. And so as we conclude this time together, we want to give you an opportunity to answer, to respond, to follow after, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, confessing that you and I were sinners, but that God sent his son Jesus to save us from that sin, to freely give us what we call the gospel, the good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So if that's you today, I would encourage you to make that decision. I'll be right down front. I would love to have a conversation with you, show you from the word of God how you can know that you have that eternal life and that you've been born again.